come on a journey with a cinephile. Episode number 43 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide, David Garrett Jr. here, recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode is going to be Journey Through the Aughts, number 17, where I will have featured reviews of The Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll. And then I also got to go to the movie theaters around here to watch Peninsula, the follow-up sequel to Train to Busan. And then on top of that, I also, for what I watched, is going to be a little bit shorter of a week because I did go to a wedding in Cleveland, and as you can tell, my voice is a little bit off because of, you know, everything for the festivities there, but I did get to watch The Mothman Prophecies as well as Irreversible, so really only would be two mini-reviews, and I also watched a third film, but I didn't get around to finishing the review for that one yet, so I'll just go ahead and tack that on to next week's mini-reviews. But what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to a musical break before I get into those mini-reviews, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. My first mini-review this week is going to be The Mothman Prophecies from 2002. This is directed by Mark Pellington. This comes from a screenplay by Richard Hetham and from a novel by John A. Keel. 
This stars Richard Gere, Laura Linney, and David Eigenberg. This is a drama horror mystery thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.4 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, a reporter is drawn to a small West Virginia town to investigate a series of strange events, including psychic visions and the appearance of bizarre entities. Now, this is a film that actually my mother and sister saw long before I did. I think part of that is my mother is a big Richard Gere fan for, you know, obvious reasons. And my sister got intrigued, though, to check this out since we have family from West Virginia and we've taken many vacations there. Now, I'll delve into that here just a little bit, but I'm going to give you a little bit more about like with my actual thing with this movie is that this is my second viewing and I'm pretty sure that I saw this while I was in college but I didn't remember a whole lot of it to be honest and I'm now watching it for the Summer Challenge series over on the podcast Under the Stairs for the 2000s. Now just to give a little bit more information is that we have John Keel who is Gear and he's a political reporter. Now he's going to meet with his wife of Mary who is Deborah Messing as they're house hunting and I think they're looking to start a family. Now tragedy strikes though when Mary gets in a car wreck and we get to see that she might have been spooked by something that flies at the windshield but we don't necessarily know what it is. But then this seems to be a blessing as it reveals that she has a rare brain tumor but then John ends up falling into a deep depression when she unexpectedly passes away. Now it jumps two years into the future where John co-worker of Ed Fleischman who is Eigenberg he's trying to hook him up on a blind date with somebody he knows and he thinks that would be good for him but John isn't ready and instead that night he heads from Washington DC to try trying to get down to Richmond Virginia as he can't sleep and it is quite late now his car ends up just randomly shutting off in the middle of nowhere and he goes up to a house and greeted by Gordon Smallwood who is the great Will Patton he tells him that this is the fourth night in a row that he's done this and that he told him that if he kept doing it, he would meet him with a shotgun. And then the local sheriff of Connie Mills, who is Lenny, shows up to defuse the situation. And this is where we end up learning that somehow on his way down to Richmond, he ended up in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And this is 600 miles away from D.C. And he did this in an hour and a half stretch, which, you know, is not physically possible. He ends up staying here, though, as he learns that there is this entity that looks very similar to something his wife was drawn before she passed away. And the longer he's here, the more that he starts to descend into madness, just like Gordon is. And he might see that there might be something supernatural going on here. But the real question is, is any of this really happening or is it any of this real? Now, that's where I'm going to leave my recap of this movie. I think it gets you up to speed here. Now, my personal connection with this, as I've said, my sister read the book that is this movie's kind of you know based off of about the mothman and she's also kind of done some other research on the entity itself now i personally don't actually believe in the cryptozoological entity but there is a museum and a tourist attraction that is now in point pleasant and even though you know it's never been seen since supposedly the other thing here is that my father went over this bridge at least once before it collapsed which is kind of an eerie thing to think about now, I think this movie is good in establishing, you know, from the beginning and little symbols. The opening meeting of John, his phone messes up and he looks at it, which is something that will happen repeatedly later, you know, when he's in West Virginia. I like that we establish his life and then throwing him right into depression not too long after that. And this movie also plays along with the idea of obsession. I like that John is a reporter, as I could see him getting sucked into the research here that he's doing. It also scares me, though, because that is something that would probably happen to me as well. And then I also should say there's an unnerving undercurrent to this movie and it made me feel uncomfortable in the moment that John ends up, you know, here in Point Pleasant. The fact that he blacks out and ends up there is creepy on top of the fact that logistically it isn't possible. It continues to build on this by showing stories of people and then we almost get like a dramatization of each of them. And I think the cinematography is pretty well done here in making them feel creepy as well. I do think the acting here is pretty solid. I'm not the biggest fan of Gear, but I think he does a good job here. You can feel the obsession to investigate, which starts off, you know, thinking that there could be a story here. And then he wants to help Gordon, but then this his madness end up kind of going over to him as the longer and the more and more deeper he gets into everything here. Um, I thought Patton did a really good job. I love his secondary role in the movie. Linny is also solid, and I also commend Messi in her minor role along with Eigenberg and the rest of the cast. I think the cinematography, like I've already said, is solid, and I think the effects, I do know that over on the episode for the Summer Challenge series, The Witch said that if you, like, pause it and look at the Mothman on that, that it's not very good. I'm glad I didn't, because the flashes, I think, are fine, you know, watching it in real time. There is some CGI that isn't great with the climax, but overall, I'd say that as long as you're not watching it in slow motion, it's fine. The soundtrack here, 
fit for what was needed but what i really like is the sound design Indrid's cole's voice is creepy because there's this buzzing undercurrent to it which makes it even more scary and the possibility that he can mimic other people's voices is great because we really get to play with things like people are claiming that other people are making phone calls to them but when you ask them about it they have no idea so you never know what's real or what is in somebody's head aside from that i do know that I just recently had read a Lovecraft story where they're talking about a buzz underneath that and that's what made me think of this while I was, you know, watching this movie and then writing this review of it. But I think the story is really interesting detailing, you know, depression, madness, obsession, and messing with time, space, continuum, and stuff like that. I mean, they're all stuff I enjoy in movies if it's done right. I think this movie is more positive. I don't ever think I'll be able to go higher than the rating I'm going to give it now as I do think this is an above average movie that I came in with a 7 out of 10 on. And then for my second movie is going to be Irreversible from 2002. This was written and directed by Gaspar Noé. This stars Monica Bellucci, Vincent Cassell, and Albert Dupontel. This is a crime drama mystery thriller from France. This is currently sitting on a 7.4 on IMDb and a 3.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being events over the course of one traumatic night in Paris unfold in reverse chronological order as the beautiful Alex is brutally raped and beaten by a stranger in the underpass. Now, this is a movie that I'm pretty sure that I saw for the first time thanks to my sister. I believe that she was out to see all the movies that Monica Bellucci was in that were available in this country of the United States, as she tends to do with actors and actresses. I could be wrong there, though, but I do know that for whatever reason, I did check this out because of her. I just know the first time I saw this, it really bothered me due to one traumatic scene. I have now given it a second watch thanks to the podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge series for the 2000s. Now, what's really interesting about this movie is that there's not a whole lot to the story, but that's not to say that it's a basic movie. If you know anything about Noé, he's a director that does quite a bit in the art house scene. Now, on the Summer Challenge series episode for this, someone stated that he makes film for himself and doesn't really care if anyone else likes them, and I think that's pretty dead on as he's a super talented filmmaker with you know especially how well he can tell a story with some of these art house type ways of filming things and to that effect and i will be honest with this movie is hard to stomach and that visceral feel is part of what i really like about it now what i really want to talk about though is how they present this story now if you notice i'm not really doing a recap of the movie because i think the synopsis gives you enough and i think the title of irreversible is interesting the horrific thing that happens to alex she will never be right again Taking this even further though, she might not even be able to survive the brutal attack. This movie is all in one night, so we never get to see the outcome, what it is there, you know, officially. If she does, things will never be the same for her, you know, even just mentally as well as physically. We learn that something about her as well near the end just makes it even sadder and makes it much more of a gut punch. And that's not even to diminish the attack that happened on her in any way. It's just even more horrific to learn about that. And circling back to the title though, we see everything in reverse with learning how happy her life is with Marcus as they get ready for that night. And going along with that as well is we get a sequence and then we'll go back to the sequence that led up to the sequence that we just saw. And that just makes it even more interesting. And especially because we have this dynamic here with Marcus and Pierre are the two guys that we're following for the most part. Now, of course, Alex is portrayed by Bellucci where Cassell is Marcus and then Pierre is Dupontel. We see the hot-headed Marcus when we get to this club called Rectum, which is, it's a homosexual club is what it looks like here, but they're also doing some kind of sex acts that are a little bit more on the fringe. But we actually get to see that he's not the one that gets the vengeance, but it's Pierre. As we see them, though, during the investigation to find it, Pierre is that he used to see Alex, but then she ended up breaking up with him. He's more of the intellectual, where Marcus is more of the go get him and the physical type. It is interesting to see how everything plays out and then to get their characters being revealed backwards because it's not how you'd expect things to be. And I will say that Marcus seems to truly love her and make Alex happy, but he just really needs to do some growing up. And then the acting here is just good across the board. Bellucci really is in it less than the other two guys, but what she goes through just makes her performance amazing. It's heartbreaking to see and just made me feel dirty to watch it both times, and I'll commend her for taking on a role like this. Cassell is an actor that I'm a big fan of. He's really good in this movie, but I don't really know a whole lot about Dupontel. But I love what his character does and to see in the reveal of everything of both of these guys, you know, as the movie progresses. There's also somebody by the name of 
Joe Prestia, who plays a character by the name of Latien, which I believe is French for tapeworm, which is funny that he's inside of the club called Rectum. He's a despicable character, but I dig his performance to make me feel the way that I do about him. And then we also get to see Philip Nahan in this, and I would have liked to see a little bit more for him just because he has such a screen presence, but, you know, it's fine for what we do get there. And I thought the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. The cinematography I find to be, you know, they use a lot of art house techniques here, but, and it can be a bit jarring, but I think I understand this movie was told backwards and the spirals are being shown with some of the cameras will just start spinning. And I think that's kind of showing that everything will come full circle. I could be completely off, but I do know that Noe does a lot and he doesn't do things without reason from what I've gathered. There's a lot of use of the color red here, which I could take as passion because we see how fired up Marcus and Pierre are. And also that Alex is thought to be a whore at first, which they would work in the red light district. So that's something that I just kind of read into those type of things there. The effects look really good here. Seeing what happens to La Tienne looks pretty realistic. I'm sure there's a dummy head used and the darker lighting helps to hide that. But that attack is pretty, you know, vicious. And then the horrific attack that we get to see on Alex mostly is likely done with angles. But I'm sure it still doesn't, you know, feel that great to be demeaned like she is. And it's also messed up that there is famous trivia here that somebody walks into the frame in the background, sees what's happening, and then leaves. I love that it's left in the movie because it's more horrific to me that someone saw the attack, decided not to get involved, and just left. And that adds some sense of realism to this movie. Now, I will say again, this movie is definitely a difficult one to watch. I can't recommend it to everybody. If you can stomach the subject matter and get through everything, I think it's a pretty powerful movie to watch and just an interesting kind of piece of cinema for what they're doing here. And I came in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie. I did also watch Dark Water this week, but I'm going to be including that on the next week's episode just because I haven't finalized doing the review on that one. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. If you cannot bear to see a man change before your eyes, then shut them for just a few seconds, if you can. And listen for the shuddering sounds to end. They mark the evil transformation of Henry Jekyll to his monstrous other self, the cruel, depraved Edward Hyde. For God's sake, man, don't kill him. Let me alone, Jekyll. Here is the century-old horror classic filmed as it has never been before with a cast that takes the living shape of the characters that have enthralled billions of readers all over the world. This is Dr. Jekyll, one man with two faces and a mind split in two. Will we ever know who we really are? Who are you, Kitty? Who are you? Dawn Adams as his shameless wife, unaware that her husband was two men, both of them watching her jealously. I don't deserve you, Kitty. You don't. I deserve you. I deserve nothing better than you. Christopher Lee as the lover who shared her deception and her danger. Here is the cold face of hate and the hot face of passion. And the face of torment. Where is Henry? Believe me, your husband is here. episode is going to be the two faces of Dr. Jekyll. This came out in 1960. This is directed by Terence Fisher and it comes from a screenplay by Wolf 
Mankiewicz, and I should also point out that it comes from the novel from Robert Louis Stevenson, but it's uncredited for whatever reason on this one, and I'll get into a little bit as to why I think that probably is. This stars Paul Massey, Don Adams, and Christopher Lee. This is a horror film from the United Kingdom that is currently sitting on a 6.3 on the IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, Dr. Henry Jekyll's experiments with scientific means of revealing the hidden dark side of man and releases a murderer from within himself. Now, this is a film that I picked up some time ago, but I just hadn't gotten around to seeing it. Now, I went out and got a copy of it because I was trying to see every take on the classic story from Stevenson of the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. To my knowledge, this is the second Hammer take that I've seen. But the first one that actually has a bit of a more traditional take than the other one that I did see, because that other one is Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. And then just to delve into some of the people here and a little bit of their background, this was directed by the legendary Terrence Fisher. He has 64 credits to his name in the directing category. 26 of them are in the horror genre. Now, he of course did a lot with Hammer, and I've seen previously from him is The Curse of Frankenstein, Horror of Dracula, The Revenge of Frankenstein, The Phantom of the Opera, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, The Curse of the Werewolf, The Brides of Dracula, and Frankenstein Created Woman. And then the writer here is interesting. It's, it's Wolf Mankiewicz, and he was an uncredited co-writer on Dr. Faustus, and he also has one other credit in with a TV show called Tales of the Unexpected. Now, it looks like he had 55 writing credits overall, but he really didn't delve too much into the genre. But I have seen the original and more comedic take of James Bond with Casino Royale. Now, he did pen the screenplay for that one. And then, as for our star here, Paul Massey. This is the only credit he had in the horror genre. The only other thing that I had seen him in was a crime drama from the year before called Sapphire. And then we have Dawn Adams. She had a long career, but only four credits in the genre. This one was actually her first one. And then she would go down to do a television show called Department S, which I've never heard of. And then she was also in The Vampire Lovers and The Vault of Horror, which I do know is an anthology film. I believe that's from Amicus. Now, if you're curious, she was in the segment that was entitled This Trick Will Kill You. And then finally, there is the legend Christopher Lee. Now... He had 281 acting roles before he passed away, 95 of them in the genre, and it would take me too long to name them all because in I in Letterboxd currently, he is the most seen actor like by film-wise that I've have on there, so I'm not going to go into all of them. I think I've seen 31 of his films. But like I said, he's one of the best Draculas, a Hammer mainstay, and one of the goats when it comes just to acting in general. Now to get into this movie, I do feel that the synopsis that we got was a little bit misleading. We start off in the garden of Dr. Jekyll. Now he is portrayed by Massey. He is speaking with his friend of Dr. Ertz, Lidauer, who is portrayed by David Kossoff. He allows a nearby school made up of deaf-mute children to play there. And then we get to see an interesting little thing here is that a little girl is bullied by one of the boys and she fights back. Dr. Jekyll uses this to point out that within every person is a weaker side that is formed by society, which I guess if you're looking at this in like Freud terms, this would be the ego and superego. Inside though is a darker side that lives life more to the fullest and does what it wants, which would be the id. Dr. Jekyll seemed to have published his research on this without real proof, so he was laughed at by his colleagues. Now, I find this kind of interesting is that we're looking at this little girl as she's being bullied by another kid and then fights back. Dr. Jekyll is being bullied by those in his profession, but he has become a recluse and is burying himself in his work. Dr. Lidauer is worried about him and his wife is as well. Now, his wife is Kitty, who is portrayed by Adams. She comes out to his laboratory to state that a Paul Allen, who we'll end up seeing here shortly as Christopher Lee, is there to see him. He's looking for money and she believes that he should be cut off. Dr. Jekyll is good friends with him, though, and states that he will give him the money like he's asking. We see that this doesn't entirely sit well with her, but we actually see she doesn't entirely hate him, though, as they're actually having an affair. Now, they do have an odd bit of relationship, though, where they kind of poke jabs at each other and go back and forth, but regardless, they still come back to each other. That night, Dr. Jekyll begs his wife not to go to a dinner party, but to stay with him. He will quit his work for the day. She says so that she cannot miss this, as she's already promised, and that they need to keep up their social standing because he's not holding his end up there, though. We see, though, that she lied to him. 
She goes out with Paul, and they really don't do a whole lot to hide their affection. I don't know enough about 1860s and around there kind of London, but I do feel like they would run into people pretty regularly. I could be wrong, but they are in a big city like London. But then Dr. Jekyll decides to use the serum he has created. It is a su success, and it turns him into Edward Hyde, who is also portrayed by Massey. He goes out into the night of London for a good time, and he ends up at the same club that Kitty and Paul are at. He reveals to them he knows Dr. Jekyll, and the trio hang out. To make Paul jealous, since they're in a bit of a tiff before he shows up and Paul's getting pretty hammered, Kitty asks Edward to dance. He has rubbed some people the wrong way in the club, though, and a fight breaks out. Paul and Edward beat up the bouncer to almost an inch of his life, mostly what Edward is doing, but it's kind of funny here as the bouncer is being played by the legendary actor of Oliver Reed. These two men start to hang out more and live their nightlife of debauchery. Edward sees a challenge to sleep with Senorita Maria, who is Norma Marla, who dances at the club, that they end up going to that night with a snake. He then turns his sight onto Kitty. He wants to see if he can give her everything that Paul does, as he kind of harbors some of those feelings that he does as he, for her, like that Dr. Jekyll does. The problem for him, though, is that Kitty's feelings. He learns a pretty hard lesson, and Edward takes a step to eliminate Henry and to become the only personality, as well as to get rid of everything between him and Kitty. Or if she's not going to come around to that, then to just do away with everybody. Now, if you've been following my reviews, either written or know recorded you know that i've seen a bunch of adaptations of the story in the past year it is interesting to see them all as close together as i have to really kind of see what one does and the take that each of them use here we're seeing massey to play both roles of you know dr jekyll and mr hyde now jekyll has a beard and he's quite stoic in nature he's determined to prove all of his colleagues wrong about his research and it is causing him to isolate himself in doing so he is driving his wife into the arms of his best friend I should also point out that Dr. Jekyll is bearded, and I only emphasize that because it isn't very good, and you could clearly see that it's just glued it on. The last line that was dropped here was because to take on Hyde is without facial hair. I'm surprised that Kitty, Paul, or Ernst do not recognize him. I've seen people when they shave today, and it makes them look differently if they have a beard than go completely facial hairless. Personally though, it just feels lazy to go that route for me. That's not to say that Massey's performance was bad though. He plays someone who is enjoying lust and doing whatever he likes, and I like how both roles are so different from each other. He seems also kind of maniacal, and then the horrible things that he's doing to break Dr. Jekyll's spirit just so he can take over, as well as, you know, tie up all the loose ends so he can take on, you know, his own life without having to worry about not only switching back, but having these other sort of things pop up as well. Now, since much of my analysis here has been about Massey and his portrayal of both of these roles, I should move next to the other actors of Adams and Lee. Kitty is interesting being that she's a woman in the 1890s, but she really does seem like a modern woman. I don't like that she's cheating on her husband. He is neglecting her, and in this era, women really don't have a whole lot of rights, so she really couldn't just, you know, get a divorce unless he agrees. Dr. Jekyll does love her and needs her, but he's lost her, and especially because he keeps changing into Hyde, and claims he's going away on these trips and everything that he's really just pushing her away and really he's hoping i guess to push her into the arms of hyde but instead he's pushing her into the arms of his best friend of paul allen now lee is like i said earlier is you know he's such a legendary actor that i don't know if i've ever really seen him in a bad performance outside of probably the dracula movie where he doesn't talk at all because he was so just annoyed with playing that role he's robbing him blind in this movie and he's taking his wife as well he really is a scoundrel but he plays it so well and like i said there's also an interesting uncredited performance here by reed as well so i would just say that the acting is probably the strongest part of the movie and is the three leads are really good and the rest is just solid in support as well I'll move next to the effects here, but to be honest, there aren't really a whole lot of them, and I'm disappointed in Hammer for not doing a transformation scene of any sort. Having Hyde be good looking is fine. Since I'm watching them a bit out of order, I do think this could be the first one that I've seen that instead of making him a monster, that they've made him into, you know, a better looking guy. The problem is that every time he changes, it cuts away and then cuts back to him without, you know, either with or without facial hair. There are movies that are 40 years older than this that did some sort of transformation scene, so I'm going to hold that against this movie. Aside from that, it does feel like the era that we're in with the costumes. There's also some good cinematography, especially with what happens to Kitty when she's at this Sphinx Club later in the movie. Now, the last thing I really want to go over here would be the soundtrack, and I'll be honest, for the most part, I thought it was fine. The music fit for what was needed, and it does seem like it would come from this era. 
What I really have an issue with here, though, is that there are quite a bit of filler with some of these musical numbers that we get in the movie. We see this whole dance sequence of Maria with her snake, which, if that was the only one, I would have been fine. But then there's another one right at the climax, where it goes on for almost like five minutes. I just felt like they lingered on this too much, and it really seems like they didn't have anything else to kind of fill here, so they were just trying to pad out the runtime. Which is kind of interesting though because, I mean, I guess it does run at an hour and 28 minutes so they probably did it for that reason right there. But it just feels like it bogs the movie down for me. So that's really all I wanted to have for my, you know, recap and analysis for this movie. Before I get out of here though, I do want to give some trivia that I looked up. Christopher Lee's role of Paul Allen was written especially for him and was one of his personal favorites to play. Lee originally though wanted to play the lead roles. This is the second of three Hammer adaptations of Stevenson's novella. The first was The Ugly Dunkling from 1959, and then the third was Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, which I have seen. This version features the opposite in transformation. The sensible Jekyll is bearded and speaks with a low voice, while Hyde is clean-shaven and speaks in a normal, friendly-sounding voice. Just taking on a little bit more maniacal thing there. Christopher Lee also played Dr. Charles Marlowe and Edward Blake, the renamed Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in I, Monster, another adaptation of this story. Lawrence Harvey was Hammer's first choice for the starring role, and while the star was keen to do it, Harvey's agent thought it was a bad career move, so the actor ultimately turned it down. Norma Marla appeared in this movie in the comedy spoof of The Ugly Duckling. Oliver Reed played the title character in Dr. Heckuel and Mr. Hype in 1980, which is another adaptation of this story. At the time this film was ready for release, the BBFC weren't very impressed with a few scenes including sex and violence. They ordered the snake dancing scene to be trimmed along with glimpses of nudity in one of the murder scenes, which kind of makes me bummed out that they did that because I do think that hurts the movie with having some of that cut out. I mean, I'm fine with trimming some of the dancing scene, but I would have liked to see a little bit more nudity because there really isn't any. And one of the murder scenes is kind of bummed that they took that. I mean, I did like what we got to see of Kitty's body, though, I will say that. This film takes place in 1874 officially. In 1967 interview of Massey claimed that Hammer originally only wanted him for the role of the young-looking Hyde, but he argued for playing his older-looking Jekyll as well. Terrence Fisher originally planned for Louis Jordan to play the lead as well. So just to round this out, I was slightly disappointed with this movie as it felt like a lesser of the Hammer films. There were some good aspects though, so don't get me wrong there. I like the idea of making Hyde to be a charismatic man without a conscience. I also thought that Massey playing both roles well along with Adams and Lee in support. The lack of effects with transformation was disappointing and the musical numbers really didn't help as it seemed just to bog this movie down for me. As I said though, there are some good aspects of this like the acting for sure. My rating here would end up being just over average. But be warned, this is from 1960 and the United Kingdom. If those are problems, I would avoid this one for sure. And my rating here is going to be a 6 out of 10. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. You get the truck, come back with the money. That's $2.5 million per head. If you come back alive.
And for my second review here is going to be for Peninsula from 2020. This is directed and co-written by Sang-ho Yuan. And then the co-writer with him was Ryu Young-jae. This stars Dong Wang-gang, Jung Hwan Lee, Ri Lee, Hai-ho Kwan, Min-jae Kim, Gayo Hwan Koo, Du Yoon Kim, Yi Yong Lee, Daniel Joey Albright, Pierce Conran, Jeffrey Guliano, Christopher Gordon, Milan Davy Labray, John D. Michaels, and Bella Rahim. This is an action horror thriller film from South Korea. This is currently sitting on a 6.0 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a soldier and his team battle hordes of post-apocalyptic zombies in the wastelands of the Korean Peninsula. Now this is a movie that I wasn't entirely sure how it was going to work out. I really liked the original Train to Busan and I didn't know where you could take it. Regardless, it was the second movie that I'm seeing now that the theaters have opened back up during the COVID pandemic that we're still experiencing at the time of writing this. And then to give a little bit of backstory on some of the players into this movie before I go on into my recap of everything, is that the director and co-writer Yuan has only directed three horror projects and they're all associated with the same subject matter. He did do the anime of Soul Station, which is the basis that Train to Busan, which is the other film that he's done, you know, kind of follows and then Peninsula being the sequel to all of these here. Now, his only other writing credits are also these three, and he also produced Soul Station along with his voices in the control room in Train to Busan. And then Yong Jae has only one writing credit being this movie, and the only horror credit for the star of Gang is this movie. And then Huang Yuan Lee, aside from Peninsula, was in a South Korean horror film called Harpy back in 2000. And then Ri Lee is a relatively new actress, being only in her teens, so this is the only horror credit for her at this time as well. Now we start this movie off in the beginning of the infection. We're with Huang Siok, who is gang, as he's with his family. They're trying to flee to a ship that will allow them to escape this nightmare, while him and his brother-in-law, his sister, and their son are, you know, en route. They're going through a wooded area. They pass car wrecks, and then one that includes Min Jong, who is portrayed by Lee and her family, he doesn't help them and just drives past, but we can see that it clearly bothers him. They end up boarding a large vessel for a sea voyage. Huang's sister is worried about how long they're on the water and that they should be at, to Japan by now. Huang goes to check and see what is going on, and then we end up seeing that there's an infection that has made it onto the ship. The Americans that are in charge do not want to reveal any information, but then tragedy ends up striking. Huang needs to make a tough decision that will not only affect his life, but his brother-in-law's as well. It then jumps four years into the future. The movie gives us an interesting way of progressing through reports on television and an interview, and it is revealed that this infection started in a laboratory and it got released. The movie speaks of a, you know, merging back to just one Korea on this peninsula and everything like that, where it looked like North Korea was finally gonna back down on some of the things that they were doing, but it, this all happened before that, which kind of seems a little bit suspect, and I think it's an interesting thing to introduce. Now, the lower half of the peninsula is quarantined. Hong and his is struggling with what happened, and those from South Korea are shunned by the people in Hong Kong, because that is where they end up getting you know dropped off after everything. And they kind of are just trying to survive here, but they are definitely looked down upon by the people that you know are from Hong Kong. Now, an opportunity arises where a crime boss of who is portrayed by a Giuliano wants these four refugees from South Korea to go back and recover a large sum of money. There is a truck that has, you know, the money in the back of it as they were trying to get it out of the country, but for whatever reason, they stopped checking in. Huang is the only person with military training, and he seems interested in going, but I think a lot of this is that he's just kind of coasting through life, so this gives him somewhat of a purpose. Now, the incentive is that they have no rights in Hong Kong, and the 2.5 million US dollars that would be given to them for getting it out would allow them to make their own way. The plan, though, is to recover the truck, call from a satellite phone on the port, and get them out of there, as there's going to be a vessel that is going to be circling the harbor that can come get them. They're given weapons and roughly where the truck was last time they made contact. Things seem to go on without a hitch until they see that they're not alone. There are two young girls that are watching them from nearby buildings, but how are they surviving out here? There also seems to be a military unit as well that has been surviving since this all came down. Now they're not so nice, and it becomes a fight for survival where the zombies might not be the worst things that are out there. 
now that's where I want to leave the recap to my of like my analysis of the film as I kind of shift over to this other part here as I feel that this gets everything up to speed for what you need to know where the story is going to take us. As I was stating in the opening paragraph for this, I really wondered where they were going to go with this sequel. I'm actually glad that they decided to put us with another group in the same world as that really kind of works for me as we're not following the same characters. On top of that, I like that since there's some been some time between the original and now, they allowed the world to develop like it does and it really helps on some aspects of the social commentary here. It's kind of a cool thing to play with here, you know, having your own world where everything has gone down on this peninsula here and we're trying to figure out a way to kind of get you back in there because it is cool that they quarantined it all to South Korea only. Now, as you all probably know, I'm from the United States, but this movie is really hitting on some issues that we see in our country here, even though you know this is from South Korea. The first being that there's a conspiracy going around that COVID was developed in a lab in China and was released intentionally to sabotage Donald Trump's presidency. Now, I'm not going to get too much into the how ludicrous this is or the you know politics behind it, but I'm assuming this movie was made before all of that. But it's scary the parallel this is drawing here and then to actually get released still during this you know pandemic. Now, we have the zombie virus here that was made in the lab. I do like here that we're getting to see, though, that a quarantine, when done properly, can keep these infected here. And then we also get to see people that are living inside of this quarantine as they stay alive. Now, the next point that I wanted to hit is the fact that Huang, his brother-in-law, and the other two survivors are refugees living in Hong Kong. They're looked down on because of what happened in South Korea. But again, living in the United States, there is a lot of talk about immigration here. I had to unfriend people on social media as they were saying some extremely racist things about those from South Central America as well, and especially the Middle East. These people are struggling being displaced with things that are happening in their country. Like, there's some wars that are going on that these people are trying to, you know, seek a better life. And there's other things that are just kind of going on that they're not allowed to stay there or it's detrimental to their health to stay there. These people, like I said, are just struggling being displaced and is much worse when those around you are alienating you as, they, as well. Now, this is kind of an intriguing thing here as well, as I do know there's been some issues with people of Asian descent being discriminated against during this whole COVID thing, especially when it is really being pushed that, you know, this is a China virus, which is kind of a horrible thing for us to be doing as human beings. But I've kind of said before, humans are garbage, so I'm not too surprised there. Now, I really don't want to go too heavy into spoiler things that are happening when they get back to South Korea in this movie for the characters, but this movie really hits on a lot of points that you'd see in the original Dawn of the Dead, which, you know, being my favorite horror movie of all time and being in my top five all-time of movies, regardless of genre, that's not to say that they stole the ideas, and that's not the case. I think what we're seeing here is the effects of having power and what it does to those that are stuck, you know, in this type of situation. I believe his name was Captain Seo, is pretty shady, and he's working with a private Kim, who is portrayed by Gyo Huan Ko. They have a sick game that they're playing that reminded me a lot of something you would see in Land of the Dead with what they were doing in their bar, if you've ever seen that. But I really like what they're doing in this movie much better, to be honest. There's also a Sergeant Huang, who is portrayed by Min Jae Kim. Now, he's on the verge of a military coup if he really just kind of pushes for it. And he has most of the power, but he doesn't really realize it. And he's not really doing anything to pull anything off with it. Just seeing what has happened as they've been isolated here for so long and the madness that comes with not only their situation, but having the power that they do. Now, if you've seen Train to Busan, something that movie did famously was tug at the heartstrings of the audience. I won't spoil what happens here, but I was wondering if this movie was going to do something like that as well. It does a different take on it, this time with a mother and her children. I do appreciate that because I know a lot of times we always say that we want sequels to do something different, but I think what we really need to have them do is we need them to kind of have a similar formula, but just doing things slightly different, which I think this one does here. And I'm not going to lie, I was tearing up at the end of this again while I'm in the theater. Thankfully, it was pretty empty aside from me and I think four other people that we were all pretty spaced out, so I didn't have to really worry about hiding it. Not that I really should, but you know, it is what it is. I do think that the impact is a little bit diminished in this film though, but I think it works with something that we saw earlier in the movie and it kind of correlates back to that. And I'm always a big fan if you can have something in your story that plays much later on into everything, because I think that's just good writing. Since this is a zombie movie, I really thought I should talk about the effects next. They really do seem to go practical here wherever they can. It seems like they got actors who were dancers or able just to do things with their body because there's some really good control that they're doing when they get turned. 
I wouldn't be surprised if they also use some wires as well. As I know that's something that they do a lot for the martial martial arts films. So we do get some zombies that are being, you know, a bit superhuman at times. But not enough for me to gripe, as I know that this is something that we see with martial arts films, like I said, from Asia. And I'll also say is that I did hear somebody say that with these running type zombies, that's what you get here. I do think that in the beginning they would be supernatural because... To an extent, because I really think that when you kind of lose that conscious part of your brain, you can kind of push your body to the limits because it's not shutting down on you like we get here. Now, the longer that they go on, though, I do think we would have some decay here, which becomes problematic for some of these zombies that have been around since the beginning, you know, four years ago. Now, there is some CGI, but to be honest, I think what they do with it is pretty solid for the most part. I do have some minor gripes here and there, but I think I'm not going to go ahead and nitpick it here as it's few and far between, I would say. I also like to keep with the mythology for these zombies where they stop moving in the dark until they hear something and then they go after it. As I said, they do run, which goes along with how they move. And I would say I'm not always the biggest fan of the running zombies, but I think if it's done properly, you can get me on board. The cinematography was also well done. Now, there are also some really good action sequences, I would say especially because for the climax here, we do get a car chase that is pretty wild. Now, I want to shift this over to the acting of this movie. I think that Gang does it really well as our lead. When we first get introduced to him, he's a soldier, and he's upholding his duty like he's required to. He has to make some tough decisions, and it comes down to him choosing family over saving the lives of everyone on the vessel. This eats away at him, so when we see him four years later, we can see that it has worn on him, and even his brother-in-law calls him out on it. I love seeing the effect that it has on him, and you can feel it, and it works for where this character ends up. Lee is also a solid in her role as the mother. I really like as she is, you know, forces Huang to grow into the final character that we get. Then we get Ri Lee is a character named Junie. There's an interesting dynamic for her as well as her younger sister in the movie of Yu Jin, who is portrayed by Yi Won Lee. Where they've grown up in this situation, so they don't really know as much around it. So it's kind of wild to be like, if this is all you've ever known, it'd be difficult to kind of leave that. And I would say that Kim, along with the rest of the soldiers in his unit, are solid as well. And, you know, seeing the effects of their world on them and how power can corrupt really works. And I think there's some good social commentary for that. Now, the rest of the cast, including those playing the zombies, did well also. Being that this movie is a little bit too new for me to kind of go into any sort of trivia, as there isn't anything that I could find as of yet, I'm just going to go ahead and close this out. So I would say that I didn't know what to expect coming in. I avoided the trailer and really reading any articles to kind of learn anything about where they're going to take this. I would say they did a really good job in keeping the feel of the first movie while giving us a new group of characters to follow. The acting really helps to move this along with the effects of the movie. The social commentary we get here really helped for me as well. Aside from that, the soundtrack fit for what was needed but didn't necessarily stand out to me. I would rate this as a good movie. It falls short of the original, but that's a tough act to follow to be honest as that's one of the best movies I saw from that year as well as one of the best zombie movies I've seen in the last decade. I will warn you, this is from South Korea. There is a bit of English in it, but mostly in Korean, so there are subtitles. If that is a problem, I would avoid this. If not, I would say especially if you like running zombies, this is a good movie with its own mythology. So I came in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie. So what I'm going to go ahead and do now is get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show.
I'd like to welcome you back one last time and just to close everything out here on the show if you'd like to get in touch with me you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com if you want to read any of the reviews on this one or any of the past reviews that I have written those are at Reviews of the Dead and that's horrorreview.webnode.com on Facebook you can add me on there as David Michigan Garrett Jr. on Twitter I'm Buckeye from Mish Letterboxd I'm David OSU Instagram I'm David OSU 87 and if you want to follow the journey with a cinephile Instagram that is journey with a cinephile all one word if you want to get in over on the chat on the flick chat app my join code for that is journey with a cinephile and that is something you can download on iOS or Android and what I, the last thing I will ask, if you could, whatever podcatching device you're listening to, to this on, if you could go ahead and rate and review me on there, just so that way I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't, and then make this the best show possible, as well as get it out to more listeners. Now, as for the next episode, I, it's going to end up being another journey through the aughts, but I'm not necessarily sure what two movies that I'm going to watch and pair up together. I know I have a list of 1960 films that I'm going to watch, and I'm also trying to figure out what 2020 release, so I will have something on there for you and like I said I hopefully will have the monthly review on there and you know a little bit more movies since everything in my life should be going back to you know this new semi type of normal thing here I want to thank you for coming on this journey with me whatever you do today I hope you're safe in doing it and have a great time this is your tour guide David Garrett Jr. signing off <laughs>